with Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined, as always, by Scott Melson. What's up, man? How are you? <sighs> the crowd goes wild. <sighs> and there was much rejoicing. It's just Andy breathing heavily into the microphone. Yeah. How was your week, Scott? Dude, pretty solid, man. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. So, a couple of uh, news items of note. On the chance that we get this edited and out today, uh, today is Saturday. We're recording a few days later than normal, but tomorrow on Sunday, April 22nd, Earth Day, uh, from 2 to 4 p.m., we're having our event called From Walkout to What's Next. Uh, it's going to be at the Cole Community Center at 4400 Northwest Expressway, just behind Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene. It's a community center back there, and the event uh, will be kind of a, a, a recap, a debriefing from the teacher walkout. We'll discuss education funding just in general, where it comes from, how it works, why it's so stinking complicated. I'll talk about effective adv- advocacy, um, initiative petitions, some other questions, and uh, and then what's next um, for, I think, the next the rest of the year for how people can get engaged, what they can do, um, how to make a difference. So uh, we hope to see many of you there. There's an excellent chance you'll be listening to this after that event happens. And that's okay because next Thursday, Scott, do you know what next Thursday is? The day we record the pod. It is the day we record the podcast, but also this month, it's April our next capital day. 26th is our next capital day. And it won't be our last capital day of the year. Uh, we do have another one on May 9th. However, as we'll discuss in just a moment... It looks like the legislature may not be there for the last one. They, you know, they're. I mean, we're going to get to this. They say that they say that we're. They say they're going to adjourn every early every year. Like they always say, yeah, we're going to Sunday night first week of May, and it literally never happens. Yeah, but this year, uh, we'll we'll save that. So anyway, uh, next Thursday, more importantly, next Thursday, April twenty sixth is our next Capitol Day. If you came to the Capitol during the walkout and you couldn't get inside the building because there are too many people. Great. Come on back now. It won't be that crowded. Uh, it, hopefully, it'll be crowded, but not not 30,000 people crowded, though that would be exceptional for one of our capital days. That would be pretty awesome. Uh, so we would love for you to join us there um, at 9 o'clock in the Blue Room. Representative Jason Dunnington, Representative Cindy Munson will be there. Uh, we hope to have uh, another legislator as well. I will. Uh, she will remain nameless at this time until she confirms, but... What's cool about this month is that it is almost two years to the day from our very first Let's Fix This Capital Day. Our very first one was on April 27th in 2016, and so it's uh, two years to the day minus one. It was a good time. It was a good day. So we're bringing back some of the legislators that came to our very first event, um, so hopefully it'll be a great time. Not hopefully. It'll be a great time. Yeah, dude. It'll be awesome. All right, Scott. So let's talk about where we're at with the legislature for this year. Are we still in the second special session? We are not. So we signed died the second special session this week, which um, I think, I don't know, my my, uh, reaction to that was goodbye and good riddance. I think you are not alone in that. Everyone at the legislature, everyone who works at the Capitol, every lobbyist, advocate, and uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry in Oklahoma was glad to, to see that end. Yeah, yeah. It did go just over four months, which means the second special session was just as long as a regular session. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was a marathon for sure, and 
and you know, uh, in one sense, a lot of stuff happened. You know, we got some of the education bills, some of the funding bills. Many of these were special session bills uh, for kind of procedural reasons. But um, really, it was four months where the bulk of activity was concentrated really in a couple weeks, right? So there was the step up plan, the kind of the run up to step up and the votes on step up. Those were special session activities. And then there was the run up to and the votes on the most recent education funding bills. And those were special session bills. But other than that, I mean, and those are, you know, those are big projects. That was, that's a lot. But most of the activity in that four months was concentrated in, I would say, what, probably four weeks? Yeah, really just the end there. Yeah. Which is, I mean, they've been the case in every session. And that's, I mean, that was their argument against doing the, uh, the first special session is that, and the second was that they were like, hang on, don't call it yet until we have a chance to get our ducks in a row. And I think the governor kind of said, I'm going to call it and you're going to get your ducks in the row, in a row, whether you want to or not. Let's speed things up. She said, I've seen you try to line up ducks before and you're really bad at it. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, you know, what hasn't been discussed yet is how much the special session costs. I, I need to go back and see how many days they were actually in session. It, because it won't, there's not an additional cost once they were in the regular session. It's just those days outside the regular session that they had to be there that they actually gaveled in, gaveled out. Some of them, um, you know, d- decided to give their money to charity or give it back and not take a per diem, that kind of thing. But there are additional costs, you know, paying for capital personnel that aren't normally there. There's a number that, a number that gets thrown around a lot in terms of the cost of a legislative day. It's about $30,000. Um, for various reasons, that's actually a little bit misleading. It's not inexpensive for them to be there, but you know the true aggregate cost over the over the, the length and breadth of a special session is it's not, thir- not $30,000 a day. And honestly, I don't, I don't think it's really anywhere close. No, but it's – I think if you add up in total how much they spent in the special sessions this, this year – is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe the low millions. Yeah. Oh, no question. No question. But I think there's just, there's a narrative out there that, you know, you know, 10 days, 10 legislative days, which is two weeks and two days, assuming that they're not in session on Friday, there's a narrative that that's Mm $300,000. So over the course of four months, you know, with two special sessions, you're talking several million dollars. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's the case. I don't think so, but I would like to find out the actual cost so that we can see if we get a return on our investment, yeah, right? No, These absolutely. are taxpayer dollars, and we all want to make sure that we are eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse, and um, having some folks sit around uh, might be wasteful. Yeah, no, no question. All right, so second special session is over. So now all we have to deal with is this one regular session, and we're nearing the end of that. So Eccles had a press conference this past week, um, I'll say friend of the pod, although he hasn't been on yet. Um, we're still working on that. Yeah, he's a friend of the pod. Maybe a project for the summer. He's a good dude. He's a busy man right now. Yeah, that's uh, true. So uh, House Majority Floor Leader John Eccles um, had a um, had a meeting or had a press conference, and he has pretty much said they expect to release the final bills of this session. So all the all the deadlines for when bills need to be heard in the opposite chamber have now passed. And so now it's no, still one left. Thursday, oh, Thursday, this, this Thursday, Thursday. Um, on this, the floor, right? All yeah, the committee the deadlines, passed. committee deadlines okay. are passed, but on the floor, 
on the floor is this week in the one committee that has not passed yet. So bills can still be heard in JCAB, the Joint Committee on Appropriation and Budget. Right. That's so always that's there. Kind of a, yeah. That's a separate issue. But JCAB's a special case all by itself. So most of the deadlines have passed. That's yes. a fair statement. Yes, that's and true. they're expecting uh, they are expecting to release the final bills that deal with the budget for fiscal year 2019, which will begin on July 1st, so just a couple of months away. Uh, and so we've we finished up all the work for the previous budgets, and we've passed the education budget for the first time ever. That's constitutionally mandated, but they've never adhered to that until this year. Yeah, so the Constitution says that the education budget for the upcoming fiscal year, fiscal year has to be passed by April 1st. This is literally the second time they've ever done that. Oh, the first time was the year that law passed. Yeah. So this is why uh, this year is a little bit different. Turns out, uh, you know, if you get the education budget out of the way, like uh, two months in advance, there's not a whole lot left to do. It's, I mean, that's what they're saying anyway. It is, it is amusing to me to hear... Um, to hear the the leadership say, yeah, we're we're gonna be out by May fourth. We think because I mean, you know, there's nothing left to do except a budget, and, right. and it's like, okay, so all we have left to do is the most time consuming and complicated thing. Now, as you mentioned, Andy, the education budget is a huge part of that, and that has been dis- they have dispensed with that already. Right, um, it's more than half of the the um, appropriated budget. Right, that the the chamber does, Chambers. and this year they are. They're because of how much money they passed and have appropriated to education as well as in some increased growth in revenue for the state. They have a little bit more money to to use next year. So when you're not figuring out how you can cut four or five, six hundred million dollars and where those cuts should be appropriated, when you have money to at least keep things flat and maybe even increase funding a little bit across some agencies, the budget becomes. Um, less complicated well and you've got i mean honestly you've got fewer folks up there yelling at you yeah to not cut right i mean right. the last couple of years so we've been around we've had just two years and the first year we had a 1.3 billion dollar budget shortfall last year it was about 900 million 900 million dollars this year was a small budget about 200 million going into it they've kind of fixed some of that or they found some revenue to Mostly deal with that. There may be problems next year. We'll get to that next year. And there's growth re- There's growth revenue that the, was... The economy's yeah. slowly creeping up. Things are going okay. And so that means that, uh, for what I've heard, they expect no agency cuts this year for the first time in Correct. almost 10 years, yeah. I think. Yep. So no agency cuts and a few agencies, DHS, um, DOC... Um, uh, mental health, some of those might even get a small increase. Yep, yep. And, and one thing that I think is going to be really interesting to watch next year, starting in January 2019 with the 57th legislature, and and this depends a little bit on, on what happens, but uh, for for people who are kind of trying to pay t- paying attention to what's happening nationally and globally, particularly in energy markets, um, you'll note that the price of oil has been pretty steadily increasing. West Texas Intermediate Crude, which is the benchmark that we use domestically, um, closed at like $68 a barrel on Friday, hmm. um, which is up substantially from where it has been the past several years. OPEC, which is the or, uh, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, so this is like... Middle East oil. Uh, in Venezuela. Middle East and Venezuela. Venezuela. Um, yeah, Venezuela. Um, they, OPEC has... And, and by OPEC, I mostly mean the Saudis. The Saudis have said that they want to see oil at about 80 to 100 bucks a barrel. That's their... I'm sure they do. They're about to do an IPO 
It'll be the yeah. largest IPO for Aramco, yeah, in history, yeah, yeah. So. And so, and so, it, this is interesting because the strategy from OPEC and the from OPEC generally and the Saudis specifically for the last several years, one of the reasons that the energy market has seen such a downturn in Oklahoma is directly attributable to the influence of Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia, as I'm sure most people know, has the largest oil reserves, oil specifically in, in the, the world. world. It's huge, okay? But not only is it oil, not only is there a ton of oil there, but just because of the geology of those formations, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabian oil is the cheapest to get out of the ground virtually anywhere in the world. So Saudi Arabia can turn all their pumps on, they can bring oil out of the ground at record pace, drop the price to, you know, the low 30s, maybe $40 a barrel, and they can actually make money on that. You know who can't make money at $30 a barrel? Our shale producers mm-hmm. in the U.S. It's tough to drill those horizontal wells. Right. And so the strategy was, and it's been effective to a large degree, the Saudis said, we are going to up our production. We're going to maximize production. We're going to create a global supply glut, drop the price, and see how many of these shale producers we can force out of the market. Because the shale revolution in the States has allowed U.S. energy producers to rival the Saudis in terms of their output. But shale producers can't stay in business at $30 a barrel. So they've been pursuing that strategy for several years. They've blown through a lot of cash. The Saudis have actually one of the most um, generous kind of social welfare states in the world in terms of what the government provides for its citizens. Don't get me wrong; they are an autocratic, <laughs> they're an autocratic, uh, divine right monarchy that is a brutal regime in many respects. I'm not trying to sit. How here do you really s- feel, Scott? <laughs> well, I'm, I don't. Want, I don't want, when I say that they have a generous social welfare state. I don't want people to think like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Like they, you know, women don't have rights and they can't drive and there's mo- like there's that is all true. But in terms of providing things like medical care and kind of state subsidies. Um, one of the ways that they, I think, kind of control their population mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is by using a lot of their oil money for these sorts of services. That's right. If it wasn't for the oil money, you'd have nothing. Well, so they can make money at $30 a barrel, but they make a lot more at 80 or 100 And they've blown through their cash reserves pretty steadily. So now Saudi Arabia, because of that, and because Aramco, the national oil company, is about to go an IP, undergo an IPO, the Saudis want to see oil prices a lot higher. Yeah. And so... I bring all of this up because there is a lot of speculation that in the next 12 to 15 months, we will see oil prices continue to rise, perhaps dramatically. If that happens, Oklahoma will become flush with cash. And I think that a debate will emerge. What do we do? Do we cut income taxes again? Mm-hmm. Do we cut gross production taxes? Do we send it back down to 2%? Do we, what, what do we do? When this oil money comes back, other states, um, Alaska, Alaska, North, North Dakota, Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> have put have put billions of dollars away in those times, mm-hmm. so that they don't have to make these draconian cuts. Right, and I th- and I think I think what's I think the question that we could be asking in Oklahoma is one: Do we take advantage of this situation uh, if it develops? So this is all speculative, of course. But if energy prices come back to that degree, do we take advantage of the situation and one put some money in the bank? But two. Even before we do that, do we try and restore the cuts that we've made over the last 10 years? Do we kind of get back to where we have these core services funded at a level where they can provide for our citizens? Mm -hmm. I think that's the debate 
that we as a state will have to have. That's interesting. I like that you basically gave a preview of the podcast in two years from now. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to find this and come back and reference it when this happens, if it happens. If it happens, if, if I'm right. so That's right, if you're right. And if you're wrong, for sure, if you're wrong, I'm going to reference this. Oh, damn it. Uh, so anyway, so we may be staring down the pipe of a of a end of the regular session, perhaps early for once. Uh, and I don't think anyone would be super disappointed by that. If all the agencies are held even or got a tiny bump, they got done early, I know a lot of folks at the state capitol that would welcome an early vacation. Right. I mean, you know me, Andy. Like, I love this stuff, and I'm so ready for it to be. I'm, I'm, re- I'm ready to not be in a session for a while. Also, I'm ready for election season. Um, yeah. Well, that's love, the other reason is that I love election season. A lot of these folks uh, are running for office. However... Not as many as you'd think. So I had a conversation with David Blatt, the executive director from the Oklahoma Policy Institute, um, certainly a friend of the pod, and I'm hoping to get him on to talk about some of this soon. He, They've been kind of looking back at previous elections and who was elected when, and a lot of this was spawned, I think, by, um, by Effie Craven, who's a friend of the pod and on our board. She made a spreadsheet a while ago, and it was covered by the Oklahoman and News 9, where it looked at everyone currently in the legislature and if they've had an opponent in the past who hasn't had opponents in primary or general, whatever, to understand how many folks haven't ever faced an, uh, an opponent. They just got elected simply by filing. It's an astonishing number. It was a, a high number. And so it started there. And since we just went through filing for all these for all the uh, House seats, a third of the Senate seats, and then all the statewide things, governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, all that, it... Uh, it's interesting, looking back, so term limits was passed in 1990, went into effect in 2000, 2004, um, and the the way term limits work is that legislators can only serve 12 years combined, House and Senate. So if you could do six in the House, six in the Senate, or you know whatever, before term limits, as it we had this impression that legislators were in office for decades, right? They were just Gene Stipe and whoever else were in there forever. And it's actually not the case. When you look back, the average tenure of most legislators was about six to eight years. And um, since then, uh, once term limits went into effect, there was this spike where all of those people that were in office kind of stayed in their maximum time. And some of this is because the Democrats were in power in 1990 and their power and they started to lose seats. And so some of those folks knew that once they left office, their seat would likely flip. And so they just kind of hung on for as long as they could to try to give their party, a, extend their influence as long as they could. Well, now it's gone back down and now the average tenure is again around eight years, uh, six, eight, 10 years. And so it's really, people aren't staying in office for 20, 30 years like we believe they would. And now it's kind of leveled out and now it may be even lower right now, even if all of the incumbents that are running for reelection, um, even if everyone who is maintains their seat, there will only be, I think 40 ish out of the 150 that are in the legislature, only 40 or so of them will have been there for more than four years. So basically it's been a full turnover. And so when, when uh, David said this, I said, man, that's, this is an important thing, I think, for people to know that when you have these, uh, this general, um, when you have this general 
intent to like vote those bums out. In fact, many of them have been out. Like a lot of these folks that are there are new. We had forty something freshmen last year. We're gonna bu- get to get a bunch of new freshmen again this fall, looking into next year. There's a bunch of people that are eligible to run for re-election who would be heavy favorites if they did, who are not running for re-election. Right. Right. John Bennett's not running for re-election. Uh, Cockcroft. Cockcroft is not running for re-election. Leslie, Leslie Osborne's not running for re-election. But she's running for statewide office. Um, Elise Hall's not running for re-election. Who else? Several in the Senate as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Four Killers not running. Representative Four Killers not running for re-election. Yeah, there's a bunch. And... There's some folks that are running for statewide office, or you know, Randy McDaniel's running for treasurer. Yeah, um, Leslie Osborne running for labor commissioner. Um, interesting. I I will post the big spreadsheet with all the candidates on there. I think the state chamber put it together, where they've yeah. already like um, gone through and kind of color coded and added additional information. It's really helpful. Yeah. Um, I got it, that on the other day, and we'll put it on the website. It's also interesting because David David put together some numbers as well. He wrote a Facebook post about this, but that when you look at who is running for who is not running for re-election and is eligible to, and then you compare what their votes were on some of these education measures, um, they line up pretty well. Um, there's a lot of folks who didn't vote for education funding, didn't vote for the teacher raises, particularly on the right, who are also not running for re-election. You know, cor- correlation doesn't equal causation, but it's interesting. But it's interesting. So I'm curious to see kind of what happens comes uh, come election season, which is an important reminder. The primary election is June 26th. There will be a number of seats that are decided on that day. Um, people who have a primary opponent, but not an opponent of the opposite party, thus no general election in November. If they uh, If they run... In June and when they're in, that's it. They've got the seat. It's important, I think, for everybody. You know, write this down in your calendars too. If you are not registered to vote, we're not judging you, but I mean, we're. Judging I am. You a I'm bit. definitely judging you. <laughs> if you're not registered to vote, the last day that you can register to vote and vote in the primary is June first. And the reason this is important, right? You can say, "Oh, it's the primary. Like, I don't really need to vote in the primary. I'll vote in the general election." The choices that you have, the choices that you have available in November are determined by the choices that you make in June, mm-hmm. right? So if you want good candidates on the ballot in November, good candidates have to win the primaries, right? And in either party, the best candidate doesn't always win, or I would often say the best candidate doesn't win if turnout in the primary is 5 to 10% mm-hmm. of eligible, vo- el- eligible voters, which is a common occurrence in Oklahoma. Right. I mean, people win by... Literally a few thousand, often just a few hundred votes. And I love looking at like city council elections because people win by like four votes. Yeah. And this person, that means you're electing someone who's going to determine the sales tax rate for your city and, and zoning laws and stuff by four people. Come on. Right. You got to show up. Now, if you're going to vote in the primaries in Oklahoma, you do have to pick a party, right? So if you, you don't want, have to, well, you don't have to. Well, you have to pick one, right? You can, if, you, if you're mm. independent, you can vote in Democratic primaries, but not Republican. So, if you want to vote in a Republican primary, you can vote. You have to be a registered Republican. Mm-hmm. If you're registered as a Democrat or an Independent, you can be. You can vote in the Democratic primary. So there's actually three parties recognized in Oklahoma right now: Republican, Democrat, and Libertarian. Right. And then if you select no party on your registration form, that would be Independent. Yes. There's not a box for Independent, which I think is misleading. Right. Because people think Independent means an Independent party. I agree. Often it's no party. Fair. 
that's a fair, fair, fair point. But pick, you know, if you think you're a conservative and you think that that's, you know, you kind of are more of a Republican, register as a Republican and vote in the Republican primary. Educate yourself about the candidates and pick. If you're more of a progressive, you think you're a Democrat, register for the Democratic Party and vote in the Democratic primary. Educate, educate yourself about the candidates and pick. But if you are intending to vote in the November election and you want to have, you know, you want to have a say in who's on that ballot, you have to vote in the primary. Mm-hmm, and if you're mm-hmm. going to vote in the primary, the deadline to register is June 1st, which is about five weeks from today. Right. You can print it off. Um, the the registration form is on the election board website. It's also on our website, letsfixthisok.org slash resources. There's a link to it. You can print it off, mail it in. You don't have to show any ID or prove anything. Just fill yeah. it out, send it, send it in. Yeah. And we, we even a- have a... Uh, a quick fix. This is what you're going to say. Yeah, we have. I was going to say we have a whole podcast episode, a quick fix episode, dedicated to the process of registering to vote. Literally everything that you want or need to know about how to register to vote in Oklahoma. Uh, so definitely show up. One caveat, one thing that I don't think we mentioned: if you are registered, so whatever party you are registered as, Republicans can vote for Republicans, Democrats can vote for Democrats, Libertarians can vote for Dem- Libertarians, but you cannot vote in the primaries of the other parties. So you can only vote for people in your own party. Correct. Independents or no party voters can vote only for Democrats. Correct. They, because the Democratic Party decided to allow independent voters to vote in their primaries. You can, as an independent, you cannot vote in the Republican primary. So this comes into play. For example, this year in the, uh, we have the gubernatorial election for the governor. So there's a whole bunch of candidates uh, that are Republican. There are two that are Democratic and three, I think, that are Libertarian. If you, as a independent registered voter, really liked one of the Republican candidates um, and you think, out of the whole field, that's the person I'd like to vote for, you don't get to vote for them in the primary. And because the way the primary thing works, it tends to be the party base or the most passionate, enthusiastic, enthusiastic members of that party that turn out. Um, if that person is a more of a moderate Republican or even a moderate Democrat, um, they may not win the primary unless people actually show up. So uh, I think this kind of thing may it may be another one of those issues that opens the eyes of a lot of voters. I hope so um, to look at uh, why we should have open primaries in our state. A few states do that, and open primaries basically mean you can vote for whoever you like the best, regardless of their party. That th- there's no straight party ticket kind of thing. Yeah, the you know the pushback that some people the pushback that some people put on that is you know the, the parties the party apparatus often uh, doesn't like open primaries because you can have two Democrats at the top of the tickets you can have two Republicans at the top of the ticket so you're not guaranteed a choice from each party at the top of the ticket um, you're only guaranteed the two people who get the most votes in the primary and I say show up vote in every election you can yeah and you'll get the best people beautiful what's next. So what's next is a gross production tax on wind that is being discussed. Um, This week, there was a press conference from House Majority Floor Leader John Eccles and Minority Leader David Perryman. Um, Well, they were at least going to sit down and discuss this. It sounds like an agreement has been reached between the parties behind closed doors um, to pass a $1 per megawatt hour tax on the production of wind industry for new projects. And they are doing this at the exclusion of capping the credits on the the tax credits um, for wind production going back. You Wait, look furrowed. So, 
only wind farms that are built after this law takes effect will have to pay this tax. It says, but only for new projects. That's ridiculous. The proposal also includes what's been called Section 9, which basically means if in the future the legislature ever tries to eliminate or cap the tax incentives on the wind industry, then this deal will go away. It's like a... Right, fail-safe. Yeah. That's stupid. Not not to have the fail-safe. I don't understand why... Because the argument from the argument from the wind industry, right, is like that new projects are the ones that could least afford to pay this tax. The projects that could, the projects that could most afford this are projects where the capital's already there. The the they've mm-hmm, already been mm-hmm. right. They're already getting an ROI. Like the farm has been built for five years. Right, right. They've already made they, their money. Yeah. They spent a billion dollars. They've had five years without paying this tax, so they start paying it in you know I don't know twenty nineteen or whatever this law goes into effect. Mm-hmm. They can absorb this better than a project that hasn't been built yet and now has to build this in to their cost structure and their financing. So I would say my argument as a as a citizen, as a taxpayer would say, okay, suck it. Pay your tax. No, I don't disagree with <laughs> no, I yeah. Make him pay make him pay the tax, but to me a better way to do it is starting in twenty nineteen all farms currently in existence, provided they've been in existence for at least five years, or you know, pick a number, right? Um, start paying it, and then every new farm that's built going forward, after they've been in production for you know two years, three years, five years, whatever the number is, then they start paying it too. But don't say that new farms have to start paying it on day one, and farms that are already built don't have to pay it ever. Mm-hmm. That's just another like picking winners and losers thing to me. Well, and so I think. It's imp- it's probably important to note that the rate is only $1 per megawatt hour, which seems to be a pretty fair or a somewhat low rate. Well, the argument from the wind industry is going to be that Kansas and Texas don't do this at all. Do they not? No. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure they're going to argue that. And th- and there might be a consequence for that, right? In, they might decide to build elsewhere. Right. In fact, as I recall, the only state right now that has a GPT on wind is Wyoming. Really? Yeah. Any other state with a significant wind presence does not do this. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not saying wind isn't taxed in those states. They may have an alternative tax structure that they feel works better for their state. So I'm not saying that we're overtaxing the industry. I'm just saying that as as a model for what should a GPT on wind be, I don't know how much data there is to suggest what the right number is. Does that make if that makes sense? Is a kilowatt hour Bigger or smaller than a megawatt hour? It's smaller. This is per megawatt hour. Okay. Megawatt is a thousand kilowatts, I believe. Kilowatts. Yeah. So a million watts. Yeah. All right. I'm trying to research how so many. It's like, like byte, kilobyte, megabyte. Right, right, right. So uh, an average American uses, uh, residential uses about a um, thousand kilowatt hours per month. So basically, this would be $1 per every household. Something like that. I mean, but do you do you see my point on like sure why, like why are you going to say that farms already built don't have to pay this ever, and farms that are going to be built moving forward have to pay it from the beginning? Why don't you just say all farms have to pay it once they've been producing energy for a set number of months, years? And I don't care; it could be six months, it could be a year, five years. Look at the math and see what makes sense. I'm sure that industry, you know, could could kind of help. Do you think it's, I mean, basically it's, you get tax incentives in order to start up the farm in the first place. Those incentives run out, and then you got to start paying 
I guess then you lose the incentive and you have to pay a tax. Yeah, I mean, and now part of the, I think pr- probably part of the argument here is going to be, not, not I shouldn't say going to be, is how how do you extract money from the wind industry? What's wind industry? What is the best way to bring revenue into the state treasury from this kind of new source in Oklahoma? And there's two schools of thought on this. The first is a wind GPT, and it's just what it sounds like. It's straightforward. You look at the number, the amount of energy. Gross production tax. A gross production tax. A how do you, you you tax the energy that is produced by these wind farms on a per megawatt hour basis? So a dollar per megawatt hour. The other way that's been talked about that's a little bit more complicated and I think is not, in my opinion, not as good of a solution is to get rid of tax credits and incentives that these companies were promised when they decided to invest in the state. So most of the wind projects in Oklahoma, or I think even all of them at this point, are benefiting from refundable tax credits. So a, re- a refundable tax credit means that even if this wind company, this entity, fails to turn a profit, right? So they don't they don't owe any corporate income tax in Oklahoma. They still they get money back, just like you and I do, right? If you file your taxes and you've overpaid or your income is below a certain threshold, you get money back from the government. That's the same with these companies, these refundable tax credits. And there have been some lawmakers at the Capitol that are saying, why are we cutting these companies a check? It's one thing to say they don't owe any tax. It's another thing entirely to give them money. Uh, Right now, those tax credits are costing Oklahoma about $70 million a year. And these these, uh, legislators are saying, this is ridiculous. Like, that's $70 million a year that we could be, you know, diverting or using to fund education. I'm going to say that's, you know, never mind the fact that many of the people that are saying this are people that have voted to gut state services over and over again, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) So, so that's one thing that you could do. Um, However, the wind companies have said, look, we counted on these, we counted on these tax credits, these refundable tax credits, when we decided to invest one, two, three, four billion dollars in Oklahoma, number one. Two, they're in contracts. Like they're, they are not just enshrined in statute that can be changed by the legislature. They are in the contracts that we have signed. So if you try to go back on your word and get rid of these, one, we're going to sue you, right? And we're going to win. And two, we are going to tell our buddies, don't do a business in Oklahoma anymore. Um, because the state legislature cannot be trusted. The other issue is that by statute, so by law, these refundable tax credits are designed to sunset. Like the ones that are still out there, I think go away in the next like seven years, maybe eight years. So, So yeah, you get $70 million a year, but only for the next seven years. So it's not like this, this is an endless source to fund education or DHS or mental health or incarceration forever. You could use that $70 million for the next few years, but it's going away after that anyway. So for those reasons, I don't feel like that's really a very good strategy. And I would say that actually the majority of the legislature agrees. Um, There's not a lot of enthusiasm for getting rid of these tax credits. Right. Interesting. So in order for this to pass, it would be a 76-vote measure, which, we, as we know, is a high hurdle. For GPT to pass would be a 76-vote right. measure. For capping or eliminating the refundable tax credits would be 51. Right. I need to hear, I need to learn more about the uh, the political reasoning behind both these things, but we should see some interesting votes coming up this week. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it's uh, GPT, like you said, Eccles. Uh, uh, floor leader Eccles, and then was it Perryman or Copeland? Perryman. Perryman. Uh, and Representative Perryman have said that 
there's an agreement in place. Should see a vote on Monday or Tuesday. If if it is a GPT, like it's a 76 foot measure in the House, so we'll see if they can get there. We'll see what happens. All right, so that brings us near the end with one last thing, Scott. I know that you follow not just local and state politics, but you also follow some national things. In particular, another man named Scott. Yeah, so this is the latest installment of our ongoing our ongoing coverage of EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, also Pruitt known as Watch. Pruitt Watch. Um, you know, beep, 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 beep. This so is, this new on Pruitt Watch. What had been what had been a kind of steady drip, drip, drip of allegations of malfeasance and overspending by EPA Administrator Pruitt has now turned into a deluge um, with an op-ed in a prominent national paper this week. <laughs> they ran they ran their headline was Scott Pruitt has become ridiculous. Um That's a good headline. Yeah, which That's I That's not mince words. Let's just get to it. Which I can't disagree with. You know, it's just I I get really frustrated because and you know, we, you and I have talked about like <laughs> when people ask me sometimes like why do you care so much about Scott Pruitt? And it's because It's because his name is Scott, right? It's I mean, partially, <laughs> right? He gives Scott's everywhere a bad name. But you know, it's more than that. Like for me, it's because one, Mr. Pruitt has held statewide office in Oklahoma before. It has been widely reported that he intends to do so again. Um, it's a speculative, but I, I think it's probably accurate. Um, there is a lot of thought that he wants to run a one for governor, run for governor of Oklahoma, perhaps even a United States Senate seat. And rest assured, his platform is going to be fiscal conservatism, eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse in government, and good stewardship of the you know, Oklahoma taxpayer dollars. And that's fine to run on that platform. I got, I got no problem with somebody. So long as it's true. <laughs> right. And I mean, and I just, it's a little tired for me to think about that from this, like he's kind of built his career on that. And uh, as well, um, going after environmental regulations, this is a guy who spent $43,000 of taxpayer money to build a soundproof phone booth in his office at the EPA. This is a guy who refused to ride in the same car that every other EPA administrator, and I don't mean the exact same car, I mean the make and model, uh, used by every other uh, administrator at the EPA. He wanted a bigger car. He wanted to have bulletproof wheels. He wanted bulletproof seat covers with a special security detail. This is a guy who has requested a security detail or ordered a security detail that is literally unprecedented in the history of the agency he heads with one exception, and that is the days immediately after 9-11 when all major government figures in the U.S. had a an extensive security detail. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who sent that security detail to, I think, Australia. It might have been New Zealand, but I'm pretty sure it was Australia. He sent them ahead to prepare for his arrival at a cost of like $50,000 to the taxpayers for a trip that he didn't he, he didn't end up taking. Okay? Like, this is a guy who insists on flying first or business class everywhere he goes because of security risks. And then when you ask what the security risks are, it's because when he sits in coach people talk to him about why they think the policies he's pursuing and his goals as EPA goals at the EPA are terrible for the environment. And he doesn't want to have that conversation. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm, I'm not making this up. Okay. Like that's what he says. Oh, and this, this $43,000 phone booth that he built, by the way, according to the EPA's own inspector general, that broke federal law. Whoopsie. Right. Like that's, that's a, so that's a felony then, right? Yeah. Like that's not, just, that's not just a bad use of money. That's illegal. And look, I'm 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 not here to like I mean I guess I'm kind of harping on Scott Pruitt more than I harp on anybody else but the hypocrisy of this from someone who like is again 
you know, a so-called fiscal conservative, government overreach, restraint, all these sorts of values that are laudable, honestly, in the right circumstances. But this is how he chooses to use or tries to use taxpayer resources that really, really gets under my skin. And if Mr. Pruitt decides to return to Oklahoma and run for governor or senator or anything else, I I really feel like this should be part of the conversation. So he does not have your vote. I try not to make those decisions until uh, you know until until it's t- until it's time. We'll see. We'll see who his opponent is. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, so you know, I'm gonna have to take some time to go read some more of the national news. I try to stay focused on on state stuff, but those are some extraordinary incidents. I mean, it, it really is. It's it's remarkable. Like it's. I, he I sounds think, a little paranoid. I mean, I don't. I think that I try to avoid hyperbole. Um, but I don't think that un- unprecedented is hyperbolic when talking about well, kind if of the it's way never, he's conducted Well, if it's himself. never been precedented, then it is indeed de facto yeah. unprecedented. I mean, it's... Do you think we can... Let's say that they rule that his little uh, magic phone booth is uh, in illegal use of funds and all that, and they take it away from him. Can we get that and use it as a podcast studio? Dude... That'd be awesome. Are you saying? Are you are you saying that Upper Room Studios needs fifty thousand dollars worth of improvements? I'd say I'd take it. Um, also, <laughs> I want to know how he got a cell phone signal in that secret booth. I assume it's a landline. Well, I guess. Ooh, like a red phone, an encrypted landline for the freaking EPA administrator. Like, is the EPA administrator calling the Kremlin? Maybe. How's the fracking going on over there? Do you guys have earthquakes like we do? Or is it that the EPA administrator is calling? Um, large oil and gas producers and chemical producers and saying, what regulations would you like me to undo for you? Right. Who knows? We're not there. It's soundproof. Anyway, sorry. Thanks for letting me get that off. That's okay. Hey, Prude Watch is always entertaining. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. Do you feel better? Uh, My migraine is gone, yes. Excellent. I took a photo of Scott while he was ranting about that. I'll post it on social media when this episode posts. And that officially brings us to the end of this episode. Remember, uh, this Sunday, April 22nd, are from walkout to what's next. And next Thursday, April 26th, is our next capital day. Please join us. Take the day off work. Just take the morning off work. Come hang out. We can go have lunch. It'd be a great day. Um, and I would love to walk with you and hear what you're passionate about and, and walk with you to your legislator's office and... Uh, either facilitate the introduction or sit in on the conversation or just get to know you. Honestly, that's really why we're here. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Melson and Andy, me, I am at at Andy OKC. You can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Let's Fix This Okay. Our website is letsfixthisok.org. And there you can sign up for our newsletter, read our blog, and find other resources and details about upcoming events. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott and me. And Let's Pod This is a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is provided by the Sugar Free All-Stars. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up.